welcome back to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger here in Aotearoa. And in this podcast, I chat with a diverse bunch of people, I learn their story and I condense it down so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and point of view on personal finance in New Zealand. So let's crack on. I met 29-year-old Dylan when he heard my call out for younger people to get in touch and share their stories with money. And through luck and good timing, aged just 21, he found himself buying his first property, an empty section, and then one thing led to another. He stumbled upon a cracking good deal, paying just 18 grand for a second section. Now, this sounds impossible, and stories such as this need a deeper dive. And as a soundbite, it's a good one, but I know that there is a lot that goes on behind the scenes that never gets explained. Well, today I will explain, sharing not only how he purchased property, but the numbers behind it. The lucky breaks he's had, and the fact that since he learned about FIRE, which is financial independence, retire early, he is now diversifying by investing in KiwiSaver and also ETF share investments. Plus, he advocates good financial management to both Fano and friends. And now that he is joining his life with the love of his life, this late 20-year-old is on an excellent trajectory for a great financial future. But before I begin, I've got a quick message from the awesome team at Pocketsmith, today's sponsor. Are you busy? I'm busy. Everyone's busy these days. That was one of the main reasons why I stopped tracking my income and expenses by hand and switched to Pocketsmith instead. I took a bit of time to learn how it all works and now 99% of the work is done for me. I use Pocketsmith to track my household's multiple income streams, plus our random assortment of weekly, monthly and annual expenses. Whenever I can, I look to automate and optimise household systems beyond simple budgeting. A fun fact, if you are one of the 88% of Kiwis who invest, Pocketsmith also connects with most KiwiSaver providers, investment platform Sharesies and it lets you integrate with your ShareSite investment portfolio. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Now, first of all, Dylan is not his real name, but he felt it was one that suited him. And a little later on, he will also share some information about his partner, 34-year-old Michaela, which is also not her real name. Now, Dylan wanted to keep his location quite vague, so I'm going to describe where he lives as a really special part of the country. It's a geographically large, remote, but accessible tourist region in the rural South Island. I've visited the area of the motu where he lives many times, and he is certainly located in a stunning part of New Zealand, that's for sure. He was lucky enough to be born in this area, he attended local schools, and although he has come and gone over the years to study and travel, he keeps returning as it is a place he is deeply connected to. He is the oldest of five kids and he is close to all of his siblings and they all live within three hours of each other. His parents are in the area too and as you'll hear in a moment, it's a family affair when it comes to business and working. When Dylan was young, his parents went into partnership with a business partner and they started a local tourism venture. Now, on the Dave Ramsey podcast, he says that the only ship that sinks is a partnership, and this proved to be the case, with their partnership imploding and Dylan's family being left to pick up the pieces. They lost everything they had created, but they managed to keep their home, which they had to fight to hang on to. It not only really set them back, 
but it actually forced them to then sell their home and move their family away from the area to a bigger city so that his parents could pick up work and rebuild their decimated financial lives. But they vowed that they would return one day, and his parents went back to their former careers, and Dylan said that they just hammered on, doing what needed to be done, and although they were down, they were never out. And Dylan said that he and his siblings had a great upbringing, despite the setback. Many members of his wider whānau and extended family, they work in and around the building industry, from builders to quantity surveyors to property valuers, so they naturally lean towards getting back into property ownership. So as soon as they were back on a stable financial footing, they moved their family right back to the small town where they'd been forced by circumstance to leave, and they even repurchased their old home and then began to build up a tourist accommodation business. Over the years, his parents have purchased additional properties in the town, and eventually Dylan was to join them in working in the business. Collectively, Dylan works with his parents and some siblings to run what has become a big tourist operation, which sounds like it's spread over a wide geographic location as they move tourists from place to place. Now, his parents are clearly well-educated go-getters, so I wondered what they taught Dylan about money growing up. The failed business venture is one that Dylan, as a young kid, sat on the sidelines of, watching his parents lose everything and only managing to hold onto their home. A really hard time for his parents and a hard time for Dylan to listen in on conversations going around him. And listening to him speak, it sounds like his parents educated their children in just what resilience and rebuilding look like in action. You just get on with it. And the more I spoke with Dylan, the more I could see that these days he is also a very resourceful person. From my own experience of growing up in a very small town, you just have to be, and the wider your variety of skills, the better off you'll be. Dylan went all the way through school and said particularly when they returned to their roots, it was a fantastic childhood. Even though he said they were broke, no excuses were ever made. He does not recall talk of budgeting, but there was clearly a level of budgeting going on in the background, as his parents were hustling for income and seemed good at planning ahead, and therefore the kids got to do what they wanted to do. And he said his parents never took on debt outside of their mortgage. They never used credit cards, and none of his family does to this day. They put their money towards things they valued, such as extra lessons for the kids in their area of interest, and they sound like they shopped smart. Dylan remembers feeling particularly stoked if his mum bought a new-to-them branded surfy hoodie home from their local op shop. Reducing, reusing and recycling were part of their everyday, and that saves a ton of money over time. Dylan started his first job when he was 15, working minimum wage at his local cafe, He worked after school a couple of days and one day at the weekend, working around his sports. That work and working in the tourism industry was great, he said, teaching him heaps of skills and it really got him dealing with heaps of different types of people from all over the world. He spent hours on end scooping ice creams for tourists, working for a boss who was a hard man, he said, prone to losing his rag and letting Dylan and his colleagues have it if the stress got too much for him. But as grumpy as this boss sounded, Dylan attributes this boss with teaching him such a strong work ethic today. And because his cafe was one of the bigger employers in town, most of his siblings ended up working there at one stage or another. This boss was firm, but he was fair. And even though tourism was their bread and butter and summer months were their busiest times, he would let Dylan and other staff take breaks over their busy season, understanding that after a long year at school, they were entitled to a holiday too. Dylan and his siblings also had a few businesses on the go to bring in some pocket money. They all got involved in making souvenirs that they would sell to tourists at their local market, 
or by running a long extension cord from the house to the front gate and busking for change from tourists who were wandering by. But I think my favourite gig that Dylan told me about was his fuel business. Now, the nearest fuel station is quite some distance away, and although locals make allowances for this by regularly fueling up, tourists tend not to and are often caught short. So Dylan kept 10 5-litre jerry cans of fuel in his car, and tourists had come into the cafe saying they were almost out of fuel, asking where they could find a petrol station. Well, in between scooping ice creams, he would point out that their chances of making it to the next petrol station were pretty low, but as luck would have it, he had a can of spare fuel in his car if they would like to buy it off him. All his colleagues knew he was running this gig, so when they got the same query, they pointed to Dylan. So he would work a full eight-hour day in the cafe, but would also sell two to three cans of fuel per day. Each cost him $12 to fill, but he would sell them for $30, knowing that there was no other option for the soon-to-be-stranded tourist. This venture started when he got his own car and licence and could drive to the nearest large town to fuel up his 10 jerry cans, and some days he made more money from selling fuel than from his day at work. And if Dylan really wanted to work on his sales and marketing skills, he would size up the engine size of their car and sell them two jerry cans. After all, no one wants to find themselves stranded on the roadside in a foreign country, right? He has a natural rapport with people, honed over years spent scooping ice creams and enjoying spinning yarns with tourists. And this last chance fuel service still continues to this day because they are still in a remote location, still a long way from a fuel station, and the options are to either leave the tourists to hitchhike to town and all the way back again, or just help them out. And of course, you would help them out. He worked at the cafe right up until he left school and moved to Wellington to study. And I had to ask the question, what did he do with the money that he made over these years? In a good move, he signed up for KiwiSaver as soon as possible, and he put a portion of his wages there from the get-go. More recently, he moved his fund from ASB to BNZ in a growth fund, and he moved because he wanted to pay lower fees. And I looked it up, he is paying 0.45%, which is not the lowest you can pay, but it's pretty darn close. With his income, he bought a cheap $500 car, and also a mountain bike, and various other accoutrements of youth. And he also managed to save about eight grand in readiness for university. There was no investing outside a KiwiSaver, instead it was the usual scenario of saving up for a big thing like a bike, and then spending all his money on that. I had to ask how a school student knows to sign up for KiwiSaver. He thinks it was just part of the application process when he started work. Whoever handed him the paperwork made sure it included information about KiwiSaver, and as soon as he started his job, he went to the bank with his parents to open a bank account for his wages to be deposited into, and he started KiwiSaver at the same time. And when he was signing his contract with his employer, he simply ticked the KiwiSaver box. And I hear this a lot, a manager encouraging new staff to sign up for a retirement scheme. And now that Dylan is managing people himself, he finds himself in that very situation. When he is onboarding new staff, including school kids, he says, you have got to get KiwiSaver. Now, of course, he can't insist people join, but he can certainly encourage them and explain the benefits of doing so. All of his school workers are part of a KiwiSaver scheme as a result of his explaining how it works. The problem he has found is that those under the age of 16, they need to take their parents to a bank or have them help them complete an online application to get them signed up. And that takes organising so it's easy to push to one side. And he gently pushes them to get around to it. 
I'm sure some of these kids will credit Dylan for their success later in life, and he feels pretty cool about that being the case one day. But he also pointed out that he does have some adult staff who, despite his explanation, they just refuse to take part, which he sees as a great shame because they are missing out on employer and government contributions their entire working lives. While staying on the subject of KiwiSaver just a moment longer, when he began working in the family accommodation business, there was one young staff member whom he deliberately didn't sign up for KiwiSaver, and he regrets that decision. Seven years ago, his sister started work, and he thought, nah, it's a family business, we are not going to pay into her KiwiSaver. So it was a semi-deliberate decision, and a bit of big brother pulling rank. However, two years ago, she realised she was not being paid KiwiSaver and immediately pulled him up on it. She had joined KiwiSaver, but he just didn't tick the box to pay her employer contributions. And when she finally realised, she had him up about it. He said that he realises now he was being a cheap bastard, and he regretted that choice. So he made amends, and he calculated what she missed out on and made a lump sum payment of about $15,000 into her KiwiSaver redeeming himself and putting right a wrong. And good on them both, I say. It's a lesson to employees to challenge their employer if they should be getting paid and are not, and it's a lesson to an employer to look out for their employees. So coming back to the $8,000 he saved from working, the decision to use this money for university study came about because he was considering studying and realised he could quickly save a bit for it. Had uni always been on his radar, he could have saved a lot more over the years. So in 2012, at the age of 18, he made the call to go to Victoria University in Wellington just a few weeks before the study year was beginning. And because he had been working in the tourism industry, he thought it might be worth studying in that area. So he signed up to a Bachelor of Tourism Management degree, which is a mixture of tourism and economics. He got on the waiting list for a hall of residence and he got a place paying $170 a week for full board. He also received a student allowance of about $205 per week money he didn't have to pay back, and this covered most of his costs. But he still took out a student loan to cover his fees. And like many, he took out the $1,000 course costs, but only in his first year, and he actually used it to buy course-related kit. He used his eight grand of savings throughout his first year to have an exceptionally good time. In the summer holidays, he returned to his previous employer and the family tourism business that his parents had taken over while he was in his second year of study. Dylan said he was working his guts out to save up more money for the coming year, managing to save, he thinks, about $6,000 in the summer break. Now, I asked him if he worked at all during the term. In his first year, he was having far too much fun to find time to work, but in his second and third years, he did work one day a week in a cafe to get a little bit of money coming in. So all up, he came out with a degree and a student loan of $21,000, so roughly $7,000 per year of study an amount he felt okay with. With so much real-world experience in the tourism industry to call on from his part-time work, the degree was perfect for him, and he said that he has used it every day since. And what he has also done is while he's working, he's actively paid off his student loan in full, which is awesome. I asked him if it was a conscious decision to fund his education in this way, using a mix of student allowance, student loans, and working. Well, no, it probably just happened, he said and there did not appear to be any other options. He wanted to go to uni, and no one else was going to pay for it, so he had to sort it out himself. As soon as he finished study, he returned home and worked the summer and autumn in his family tourism business that they were now building up, saving up as much as he could 
so that he could take a trip around South America, leaving New Zealand in winter and backpacking around for six months. He knew that when he came home from his travels, he would get right back into work and it would be all hands on deck, working with his parents in their business. They were working every hour under the sun to get it off the ground and build it up, so he always knew there was a position for him. Now it was just five days after he returned from South America that his first property appeared on his radar. He was 21 going on 22, it was about 2015 and he had moved into his own caravan located on site at work. A local had offered him a house for removal. They were building a new house and wanted the old one gone. The house was free, he just had to find somewhere to put it. Because his family have been involved in all angles of property over the years, there was a wealth of knowledge for Dylan to call on. So whereas relocating an old home might seem difficult for you and me, not so for him. He was looking around on Trade Me and he found a section for sale just down the street from where he was living. It was a section that he didn't even know existed. He had absolutely no money at all, but someone was offering him a free house, just a shack really, and he was intrigued by the idea of finding a place to put it. He viewed the section and he thought, man, this place is next level amazing. Incredible views, beautiful bush, and on trade me for $120,000. And his dad said, be outrageous, offer 50 grand and go for it. So that's what he did. Now they counted at $65,000 and the deal was done. He bought his little piece of paradise in late 2015 and all within a few short weeks of arriving home. So you know I had to ask, how on earth did he pay for it if he had no money? He paid $5,000 as a deposit. How? How did $5,000 magically appear like that? Well, as soon as he stepped off the plane, he immediately started working and his family kindly gave him an advance on his wages as they knew that he was there to work all season long and he asked if he could settle the section in July of 2016, giving him further time to save and organise lending and the sellers said that's no worries, they were okay to wait. He needed to come up with a 50% deposit of $32,500. This was a bank requirement because he was just buying land and he cobbled this together by using the $17,000 he could pull from his KiwiSaver fund, the $5,000 deposit he had already made, and then slogging it out at work to save up the shortfall of $10,500. He then took on a mortgage of the other half, which was $32,500, and he said his payments were only about $90 a week, which was sod all really. Dylan said that at this time, life was pretty awesome. He was in his early 20s, he was living the dream with steady work, living in his own cheap caravan, and he had heaps of interesting and fun people coming and going. And although the original point of the section was so that he could relocate a free house onto it, once they took a much closer look at the house itself, that all just got a bit too complicated and expensive. So no house, but a nice plot of land instead. And the land just sat there for a while until one weekend he thought he might just park his caravan up on the section just to see what it was like up there. And that was that, it stayed, and he stayed on the site for the next five years. Yep, you heard me right. Now, hospitality has always been a big part of Dylan's lifestyle, and during those years, he would always offer his caravan sofa on couch surfing websites, meaning an interesting stream of people would stop in for a night or two as they travelled through the area. The couch surfing website tagline is, you have friends all over the world, you just haven't met them yet. And he said after saying no to the relocatable do-up, he had no further house plans for a number of years. He just had his caravan on the site, 
interesting people staying in his caravan with him and was living the dream lifestyle, he said. After seeing how much other people enjoyed his spot of paradise, he then slowly started to toy around with the idea of building something on the site as tourist accommodation, and that coincided with the government announcing extending one of Aotearoa's Great Walk tracks around his area of the Motu. And he saw the opportunity for more tourists to come into his area, and he saw the opportunity to provide accommodation for those tourists. His mum bought him a tiny house book for Christmas, and then his extended family started pitching ideas for how a not tiny but small house could be built on what sounds like a relatively steep site. He found a plan in the book that he liked, and in 2018 he started planning out a house build. He took charge of getting the site ready while the 65 square metre two-bedroom, one-bathroom house was built in a neighbouring town to eventually be trucked onto his prepared site. And when it finally got to the site, he added a huge deck to finish it off, and it was finally completed in 2021. So the build really took three years from start to finish, which is such a long time. Why did it take so long, I had to ask. Well, the bank took ages, and getting approval for a new build was a longer process. The council was fine, he said, but then obviously COVID came along and slowed things up. He was halfway through when the lockdowns began. The building of the house itself was just six months in total, but it was a very interrupted build. He borrowed some of the money to make the project happen, and to do this he got a valuation of what the land and the house would be worth after completion, and his parents also lent him $50,000 for a period of one year to get the project started, and he poured cash from working into it as well. Then, when it was finished and the property was revalued, the bank then lent him an additional $50,000 so he could pay his parents back. So given it took so long from start to finish, and had he worked the whole time, he paid for as much with cash as he could. He had to spend so much money to prepare the site before he could even approach the bank. He saved and spent $30,000 on a driveway so that he could get his future house onto the site. He paid cash for house plans, engineers' reports and soil reports. He paid cash for all the materials for a huge retaining wall, but he cut costs by having his mates turn up for a working bee, and payment to them was two kegs of beer once the job was completed. His total mortgage debt for the entire project, including the land, was then $315,000. And when it comes to the cost of a self-build, particularly one spread over a number of years, I find it's always hard to come up with concrete numbers from the explanations people give me, but all up between borrowed money and cash paid up front, I think he said it cost him 440000 And that amount got him a fully complete and furnished house ready to be rented out to tourists. It was never his intention to live in it. It was always to rent out to tourists. And he stays in it the odd night, but otherwise it is rented out for $450 per night. To which I said, holy moly, this is why I can't afford to travel in New Zealand. But he kindly pointed out that his family offers tent sites in his area for people just like me. So what about his income during this time? He seems to be an excellent saver to pay cash for all of this work. So during the early years of this build, in about 2018, he was earning about $50,000 before tax, he said. So he kept his living expenses extremely low by living in a caravan and put as much cash into his build as he could, therefore reducing how much he needed to borrow. His work is seasonal, and while things have changed now because they have worked so hard on growing their business, and they are more steady over the year, at that time they were much quieter in the winter months. So Dylan spent his time backpacking around New Zealand, and what he also did at this time was find extra sources of income wherever he could, 
and that included walking waterways and beaches, looking for gemstones that he could sell. And when I asked him if he ever managed to find anything to sell, he said that he certainly did. So who knew that such a thing existed, right? And I might spend a bit more time looking at the ground when I go out for a walk in central Otago. I might strike it lucky and find some gold somewhere. During the 2019 winter, he was able to save up enough money to head to Europe for six months. It was at this point I had to ask how, when he earned so little money, was scraping by and building a house, did he afford this? And he said he did it on the extreme cheap. He sounded like a master at budget travel. He couch surfed for his accommodation and said that on these big trips away, he would spend in total about $10,000. He got in touch with the people who had slept for free on his sofa over the years, and he went and slept on theirs for free. All that hosting he did in his own caravan meant many favours were owed, and he called them in as he travelled Europe. He took cheap public transport, and he caught up with heaps of mates along the way. He returned home for another busy summer season, and then the planning and the building of the house began in earnest, with all of his money going into the project. He didn't mind at all because he loved the excitement of the whole process, even though it was a very slow-going process. So while that was simmering away in the background, another good thing happened. He made a new friend, Michaela, a healthcare worker who had also moved to and fallen in love with his part of the countryside, moving to a bigger town in his region. It's not easy to meet someone in a small town, so he was pretty stoked to hit it off with her. But the timing was not great. Just a few short weeks later, she was off to Europe, so he was thinking, ah, great, I finally met someone and she's buggering off. But keen to get to know her a bit more, he was able to get away from work and join her in Europe for a bit, once again on a tight budget. He returned home to his drawn-out build and to resume his work. He has been really fortunate to have a few things going on for him, a job he can always return to and the ability to live on the smell of an oily rag and therefore save money. Michaela also returned home to work and their relationship slowly began to grow, officially becoming a couple in 2021. In the meantime, he negotiated his way through the COVID interruptions, finished the house build and started renting it out. He remained living in his caravan on site and when there were no guests, he would wander up to his house to use the amenities and watch the big screen tally before returning home to his caravan to sleep. But what about COVID, I hear you ask? Given all the tourists ran for the exits, surely opening an accommodation venture at that time was not the best timing. In his words, he said that New Zealand visitors were just cranking through, and with new multi-day walking tracks in their area, they were fully booked. As a family, they had been positioning their offers of accommodation and activities to cater to these tourists, and they were extremely lucky that even with COVID, it all worked out okay. So with his house finally completed and generating an income for him, that in turn paid his mortgage. Dylan was finding that life was pretty darn good. Ever the optimist, he was looking for good things to happen to him, when a chance conversation with a local grabbed his interest. Apparently, his local council was trying to sell some abandoned land in a small town about an hour's drive from his house. The owner was in arrears with their rates, but was nowhere to be found. And after exhausting every avenue to find them, but with no luck, the council are allowed to sell the property to claw back the rates owed. So this really small town is not a place that would appeal to everyone. I think the majority of us couldn't even find it on a map, but it's a place where Dylan would regularly shuttle tourists to and from anyway as he dropped them off at various walking tracks. So he went and he checked the property out, and he quickly decided that if the price was right, he was interested in buying it. 
This abandoned section was to be sold by tender, so it was anyone's guess as to what it might go for. Because he had not actively been looking for another property, Dylan didn't really have any spare money, so he thought he'd just submit a quote stupid tender of just $18,000 and leave it to chance. He heard nothing until a couple of months later when the council rang him up saying, well, his tender had been successful and he now needed to arrange payment. It was a huge surprise, he said, and he almost fell off his chair. He had just bought his second section for 18 grand. His tender offer was more of a joke than anything, he said. But jokes aside, he was the soon-to-be proud owner of a 1,000 square metre section in the middle of the town. It's a teeny town, but still a town that he wanted to be part of. So this is how small towns work. A chance conversation and one thing leads to another. Since submitting his tender, he had been working all summer long. So by the settlement date of May of 2021, he had the full $18,000 cash saved up. It's rare to pay cash for property in New Zealand, but far easier to do at that price, don't you think? So what next? When we spoke in March of 2023, he was in the process of seeking resource consent to build a multi-purpose building on the site. It's going to be part storage shed to house vehicles and equipment, part purpose-built Airbnb accommodation. Income will come from guests who pay to stay and money from renting out the storage shed. And he will need to finance the build with a mortgage. So how did he learn all this? Because finding the site in the way he did and purchasing it, well, this is all quite complicated and unusual. And he credits his dad and family's knowledge about building with helping him navigate each new situation. The tenders, the mortgages, developing a multi-use site, working out how to make money out of it, getting equity out of his existing property, using the shed for commercial use, for example. As a family, they all talk to each other and they help each other out. And that has been instrumental in what he is doing. But anyone who has listened to my podcast for a while will know that I'm in favour of diversification and having a variety of different assets. If all he had to tell me about was his next property deal, I probably would not have taken the time to chat. Having money tied up in property and having debt on that property means you can work your way into pretty illiquid positions. I honestly think that the safest way to negotiate your financial future is to diversify, and that way you are better able to adjust course in changing economic times. So why did I want to share Dylan's story? Because his journey with money is evolving, which I found interesting and I thought you might too. When he was at uni, he started a spreadsheet to calculate where his money was coming from and going. He kept it up for a time because he needed to pay attention, but then he let it slide for a number of years. His attention was reignited when he was getting his build and his Airbnb property up and running. He needed to pay attention to where his money was going again. And he also started to seek out some new information to add to his financial knowledge. In 2022, something else also started to get his attention, the share market. And this is where his financial flop gets a mention. He got caught up in the hype of day trading shares, losing $2,000 in the process. Now it goes against my better judgment to also share with you that he thinks it was a lot of fun to try because no part of flushing two grand down the toilet feels fun to me but there you go. He said it was pretty exciting while he was doing it. He loved the yarns about shares and companies and following them online. And interestingly, he loved the dark screen with lots of colors and graphs and action. He wanted to see markets and graphs and lots of action to just keep him excited and engaged while he lost his money, which sounds very much like a casino to me, just saying. 
and he now sees it was just irresponsible. Personally, I think we have all watched too many movies about the share market that seem to make it this exciting dog-eat-dog world, when the reality is that share investing done well is one of the most boring, hands-off things you could ever do. And I love this dead boring way of investing because it allows me to get on with doing other far more interesting things while my wealth slowly grows over time. Thankfully, ultimately Dylan thought it didn't seem like the right way to grow wealth either and by chance his partner Michaela had suggested he listen to a few personal finance podcasts while he was doing odd jobs about the place at work. And it was while water blasting one day that he took a listen to my podcast. In each episode, I asked people to share tools and resources that they found useful, and Dylan took the time to follow up on some of those. One book that comes up the most was The Barefoot Investor by Australian Scott Pape, and Dylan tracked down a copy for $4 at his local op shop down the road. He read it and he thought it was really good. Michaela had a read as well. He then followed up the mention I'd made of Canadian-American blogger Mr Money Mustache, real name Pete Adeney. And he was like, oh my God, this is pretty much me. This is my vibe. Pete likes to work with his hands, fix up houses, invest in the share market and maximize his enjoyment of life. Dylan began to work his way through his entire website of blog posts. Dylan, like Mr. Money Mustache, loves doing all kinds of physical stuff. He enjoys gardening, cutting his own grass, fixing stuff and DIY maintenance. And he loves all the house-related tasks that would really put a lot of people off owning property. And that resource ignited the idea of early retirement, and it led Dylan to further research how early retirement is even possible. And he started to dig around for even more information. A cousin of his had always had an InvestNow account, and while Dylan was day trading and watching his investments fall off a cliff, his cousin had showed him what funds he was invested in, funds that didn't appear to be dropping to zero. It sounded good, a better way to grow wealth. And because his new build project was stable and all his bills were being met, he had money starting to build in his account that he was keen to find a use for. He read up about FIRE, which is Financial Independence Retire Early, and realised that, holy heck, he could work himself into a position to become work optional. With rental income, a PAYE job and other side hustles, he is already bringing income in from a variety of sources, which is increasing his diversification and making him less reliant on one particular stream of income. Multiple income streams are a really good way to cushion yourself when you are working towards early retirement. So learning about FIRE was a huge learning curve and brand new information. FIRE sounded like something he would like. He likes working, but it would be nice not to have to if he chose not to at some point, and he could still create an income. It would be next level, he said, to be FIRE and then have kids the options would really open up for him. Also, the thought of investing in something other than property and not having to go through the drawn-out hassle of a third new build sounded quite enticing too. He just kept researching options for low-fee investments, he read heaps of books and he learned lots of ideas and perspectives. He read The Millionaire Next Door by Thomas Stanley and William Danko, although a tip he said is to just read the back cover and you've pretty much read the book. He said in one sentence you can get the vibe, And I'd actually point out that you can read the modern day version of this book, Everyday Millionaires by Chris Hogan. And I think the whole book is worth a read. He also read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. He liked The Richest Man in Babylon too. And once you can get used to the old world language, it is a great book. He listened to my favorite, J.L. Collins, A Simple Path to Wealth on audiobook. And he found it super useful. 
until you get to the boring American tax stuff near the end. Both Mr Money Mustache and JL Collins kept talking about Vanguard investments, and Dylan thought that this was interesting, and he just began to search for New Zealand accessible Vanguard options, eventually narrowing his search down to a couple of options and finally beginning to put the theory into practice and beginning to invest. He is now investing a total of $400 each week into three things, and after six months of investing, he's built up a total balance of about $15,000, and he's investing in the new Invest Now Foundation Series US 500 fund, and the fund is made up of the Vanguard 500 Index Fund ETF and has a transaction fee of 0.5% and an additional annual fund charge of 0.03%. He is also investing in the new InvestNow Foundation Series Total World Fund, which is made up of the Vanguard Total World Stock ETF, and it has the same 0.5% transaction fee and an additional annual fund charge of 0.07%. Now, I've noticed that many people are investing in both of these funds these days, But it is worth noting that there are a lot of crossovers between these two funds where, and I'm guessing a bit here, approximately 60% of the total world fund is made up of the US 500 anyway, and it's just worth researching a bit more as to the pros and cons of these, I think. The third investment he regularly invests into is the SmartShares New Zealand Top 50 ETF with a fund charge of 0.50%. He also has been investing in a couple of other Vanguard funds, but I won't go into them because the more we spoke, the more he outlined how his investing strategy is already starting to become clearer and more defined. He started out by buying into nine funds, which is a lot, with a lot of overlap, and he is now down to five, having sold some off, and he suspects he will get it down to just three funds because he can see that this was a bit of a scattergun approach and he was doubling up. Now, it will be interesting to check in at the end of the year, perhaps, and see what else he has tweaked, but Dylan's is a common story of the self-directed investor. You learn some new knowledge, you begin to invest, and then you stand back and you assess before tweaking and moving on. He said that Michaela also has a couple of investments and is using the SmartShares US 500 and New Zealand Top 50 funds. They are each tracking their progress using New Zealand company ShareSite, Now it's free to use if you have under 10 holdings, which most ETF or index fund investors do. And personally speaking, because my math is not too hot, it is the only way that I've found to calculate whether my investments are actually performing or not. Now you'll find an affiliate link to them actually at the bottom of the homepage of my blog if you are considering signing up to them. It would be lovely if you would use it. But now money is a complex thing. And the thing about it is that you might have $1 but you can deploy it in 50 different ways. So it was at this point that he explained that he could have had $30,000 invested instead of $15,000 because he had built up that amount in cash, and I found his explanation quite interesting. The new build he is organising will be paid for with a mortgage, and the final price came in at $15,000 more than expected. No bother, Dylan explained that the bank said that they would increase his mortgage by $15,000. But Dylan decided that given he had the cash in the bank, he would put cash towards the build instead, therefore reducing the total amount of debt he would be taking on. Now, this is a bit of a big deal, don't you think? Well, I certainly thought it was. Most people would grab that extra lending. This is OPM, or other people's money. You leverage and use debt to build your wealth if you want to succeed in real estate, apparently. But Dylan has worked out that if he wants to fire Up to a point, it is okay to use debt as a tool, but he needs to keep his lending to a minimum to achieve his build goal, 
and then he really needs to get the heck out of debt. So the less he can take on, the better. He wants to own his properties outright as quickly as possible and then collect and keep the rent. This income will enable him to fire. His new mortgage will be $298,000 and he liked the sound of it being under $300,000. So not borrowing that extra $15,000 was a psychological trick as well. It would have pushed him over and he didn't like the sound of borrowing $313,000. $298,000 sounds like a more palatable number. He has set up a revolving credit mortgage and in that bank account, he stores tax money that is due for payment next year, but is currently offsetting interest. And he also keeps additional money from his rental income and his wages in this account to keep the balance as low as he can. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. When people explain the ins and outs of the mortgage structure to me, it's always confusing, especially when they have a couple of properties. So Dylan, I hope I covered it well enough. And Dylan also advocates using a really good accountant. So I have no doubt that he has a really good structure to do all of his financial dealings. So next I asked him about his partner, Michaela, and their relationship with money, because with a marriage on the horizon, they are on the path to combining their lives. Now this got quite interesting, and I just want to point out that I only spoke to Dylan, and if I had also spoken with Michaela, I'm sure that many of my little nosy questions may well have been answered. As we started down the route of relationships and money, I had the, oh, here we go again moment as I tried to ask enough questions to comprehensively outline their financial situation because although they are combining so many other aspects of their lives together, their money will not be part of it. He said that they have regular chats about money. They are both interested in money and doing well with money. And like him, she also owns a home, a doer upper with a mortgage in a town about an hour and a half away from where he lives. Currently the house is vacant and they live together in the manager's house at his workplace because this is provided as part of his employment contract. They both enjoy working on her property together and he loves helping her with this, seeing her get herself set up well. And the intention over time is that this becomes an Airbnb too, which will create her a secondary income. She is very well educated and has a student loan as a result. And I was really surprised to learn that he had no idea what the balance of his student loan was. He has asked, but she preferred to keep that information private, except to say that it's over $50,000. And he assured me that they were totally open and that there were no secrets, even though he doesn't know the exact number of her income or debt. But he is actually not bothered, he said. Well, I know that I would be, but that's just me. And I just couldn't watch my spouse labor under the burden of a student loan debt throughout our married life, when I knew I had the ability to help. I've thought this situation over quite a bit while I've been out running, and I think that is what it comes down to. I like to fix problems, and that would be a problem that I could easily help my partner fix, and I would enjoy helping them lift that debt burden. I couldn't understand why it couldn't be discussed in detail. They have such a good thing going on. They're getting married, they live together, they're both in good jobs, and they both talk about money. So why can't they openly discuss what she owes and how can he feel comfortable not knowing that amount and how can she feel uncomfortable not sharing that information with her spouse? Maybe it's just because I've listened to too many US podcasts where it's not uncommon for people to have hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loan debt and all I can think about is the fact that I would not want to know, instead I would have to know that information heading into a marriage. Why? 
because I would consider my partner's problem to now become my problem. And we all know that a problem shared is a problem halved. But although they are combining the rest of their lives, they are keeping money apart and they have completed a contracting out agreement with the help of a lawyer. I ask why the need for such caution. Probably, he said, because of horror stories he hears about when couples split and that he has more to lose than her. She offered to sign a contracting out agreement and he was like, yep, sweet. And when I briefly asked about both of their parents' money setups, Dylan said that his parents have combined finances, but Michaela's does not. And he thinks that they might readdress this agreement in the years to come, but there does not seem to be a clear pathway to this. And I noticed as I was writing this episode up that the lines between speaking exclusively about himself and speaking as a couple became more blurred the longer he spoke, pointing to the fact that they will just become closer and closer personally and most likely financially too. But they have discussed what might happen when they have children and in the agreement, it's stated that the person who remains working shares their money with the stay-at-home parent and that includes them having to pay into the other's KiwiSaver to the same value. Now, I know that marriages fail, and they fail for many reasons other than money, and I get that, but the people I know who really seem to get ahead financially, and the people who are financially independent with work being optional, well, I can't help but notice that they handle their money as a team. Any money coming in, no matter who earned it, is family money, and it just cuts down on math. And being on the same page with money, it irons out many other problems in life. And my cynical take on things is that the threat of future divorce and having to halve your net worth, it should be the impetus to really grow your net worth as big as you can together. And in that way, you have something decent to cut in half when you split. And a final note is if you have all of your financial cards on the table for each to see, but you don't have a binding contracting out agreement, Divorcing is far easier because you can see what to split instead of using lawyers to extract the exact financial position of your unwilling spouse so it can then be divided. So right, that's enough of my opinions and it's time for me to move on. But hey, isn't this just fascinating how people arrive at the place they're at? And I'm not passing judgment. I think it's just interesting to share because you might be listening to it and applying it to your own situation. Dylan said he would put his biggest financial success not down to money, but down to a positive attitude in life. His financial success would obviously be being in the right place at the right time to buy a good section, but we both agreed that if you have a good attitude, you are open to luck happening to you because you are always looking for something interesting to happen, like looking for a good property deal, for example. Plus, when you see an opportunity, you take action on it. He always makes sure he focuses on the positive outcomes rather than the negative, and he actually credits the controversial old book The Secret with cementing his good attitude and drawing good things into his life. So instead of just wishing good things to happen, he actively works to turn a good opportunity into a reality. And as for his elevator pitch, it would be something along the lines of don't touch a credit card, use a debit card instead, delay gratification, he has wanted to buy a Tesla for a while, And at a stretch, he could actually manage to make that happen now, but he won't because it would get in the way of his other goals, and he would encourage you to invest your money in KiwiSaver. Earlier, I mentioned that out of necessity, he began tracking his money while at university, and more recently, he has been tracking his net worth via a tracker called My Wealth Dashboard, 
which he found for a one-off payment of $50 on Etsy, and he has tried a few budgeting apps, but has settled on this one and he really likes it. And because I always get deep into the weeds in my conversations with people, uh, my line of questioning got a bit vague here and I missed out on some details, but I can tell you that his current net worth is about $482,000. So this is the total of what he owns versus what he owes. And it is a bit tricky to work out because he has a new build in the works and is spending cash where he can, borrowing when he needs to, and he has cash in the bank which is offsetting interest payments but will soon be spent on taxes or buildings. So it's complicated. But a few interesting facts are that his $18,000 section is, get this, worth $120,000. How's that for capital gain? He puts the value of this property at $170,000 though because he has already put $60,000 cash into getting the planning process underway. His first house has a current value of about $540,000 and he's got $27,000 in KiwiSaver and of course $15,000 in InvestNow. His current debt is around the $300,000 mark, but this will increase as his second house bill progresses. After expenses, including his mortgage, he explained that his house is providing him with an income of $30,000 per year, and this is considered to be quite high, but the result of a high nightly rental rate. So combine that with his wages from his full-time job, the ability to live cheaply in a manager's house, and the income once his next property is ready to live in, and you will most likely agree that he will have created himself a really good income which comes from several sources. He also has one more string to his bow, and that is that he does some contract gardening work too. So I like the diversification of his income streams because it means if one dries up, another can cover it. And I can absolutely see the similarities between him and Mr Money Mustache. Both are very busy people. Now because he built a new home that he rents out, he can still claim back interest paid on his debt. Unlike others who are buying and selling existing homes and moaning that they can no longer claw back tax, because his house was built after March of 2020, the interest he pays on his mortgage can be offset against the tax due. The government wants people to add to the housing stock, and that is what he has done, and he is about to do again. He said he would not buy an old house for this reason because claiming back the interest he paid last year was, in his words, lovely. Of course, none of this was in his mind when he built. He just wanted to build a house, showing that most investors, property or otherwise, are just making it up as they go along. And what advice did his parents teach him about money that he remembers? He thinks he has always been pretty good with money all along, and those skills came from paying attention to what was happening at home. But if he was to narrow it down, he might say some advice was to buy property as soon as he could and to always live within his means. As a family, they never spent money that they didn't have, completely staying away from consumer debt. So what is his intention with this portfolio of investments? Where does he see himself in five to ten years? He estimates he will be fire and able to make work optional within seven years. He does not intend on getting a mortgage for a home that they would live in because that home would not pay them rent. His current arrangement is that by renting out his house on Airbnb for $450 a night, his mortgage is covered and some. The same will be true for the second property that he is gearing up to build too. And the day he takes on debt to pay for a house that they live in, he will have to work to earn an income to cover that mortgage. So while they have the work perk of living in a manager's house, he will direct his money into assets that return him an income. 
He has always been frugal. Spending money for the sake of spending money is just not in his psyche. And he naturally has low living expenses, spending about $25,000 per year to cover all of his costs. Dylan and Michaela follow a plant-based diet and in the last 13 months, he spent $4,770 on food. They now go halves on food. So looking ahead, he thinks they'll both spend about six grand in total. They drive a Nissan Leaf, so they pay $0 for fuel. And it has a good range and gets Michaela to and from her workplace an hour away. And he also has a work ute at his disposal. They are both runners and running is his fourth biggest expense after paying interest, paying his accountant and insurance. Running cost him $5,500 in the last year and that covers shoes at about $300 a pair, competitions and a coach. And since following Mr Money Mustache, he has cut back his dining out and in the previous 13 months, he spent $2,700 or just $207 a month eating out. Now, when he is doing his sums around early retirement, he is using an annual spending figure of about $35,000 per year, meaning that his fire number or the sum of money he would need to have invested to return him $35,000 of income a year would be about $875,000 invested in assets that return him a passive income. Why the higher amount? Well, he expects that they may well have children, so his costs could rise. Once again, separate finances briefly came up because this is Dylan's personal fire number, meaning that they might be in for quite the awkward conversation one day when he says, well, honey, I've reached my fire number, I'm stopping work. Meanwhile, she has to keep up her day job. So that's a conversation for another day, perhaps. There were additional resources that he wanted to mention. One was the podcast, Keep the Change, because he likes the blokey nature of it. In contrast to that, he likes cooking the books, which are more for the masses, he said, and Wealth Plan, a new podcast, he said, talks a lot about property investing, but also covers ways to pay off your mortgage fast, which he is very interested in doing. More recently, he has helped his siblings move their KiwiSaver funds. They were all in KiwiSaver, but were on the wrong fund type for them. That is, a conservative fund in their early 20s, when they should have been in a growth fund. If they could change to a different fund type with the same provider, he helped them to do that. But if the provider's fees were too high, one of them was paying a whopping 2%, he helped them move to a better provider. His siblings are all so young and won't be accessing this money anytime soon because some of them have already tapped their funds for house deposits. And Dylan talked them through the merits of being in a higher growth, lower fee fund. And he literally sat with them at the computer and stepped them through changing. So did they accept his wisdom, I wondered? And he said that, yeah, they did, because they had their brother, who they trusted, offering some decent knowledge, and then they just wanted to get it sorted and get on with it. So my final question was what he would do with $10,000 if it landed in his lap. He said he would probably put it into his InvestNow account. And a bonus question, given he had a wedding coming up, I had to ask about wedding costs. They wanted the best music and food, so they spent $5,500 for 100 people on a plant-based buffet and $2,000 on music. Family have paid for the alcohol and the photographer at a cost of about $4,500. And given they can provide ample accommodation to their guests, well, that was a big bonus for all too. Right, now before I wrap up, I just wanted to share a quick word from Pocketsmith, today's sponsor. 
If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. I loved my chat with Dylan, and I'm sorry that I didn't get the opportunity to Korero with Michaela because I think that hearing her story would have added another layer to this episode, but who knows, they might be a revisit in a few years' time. I saw their situation as two lanes merging like a zipper, but the merge was still in progress as they were both trying to work out the direction the other was taking, and it was interesting to learn about them. He was a reflective individual with a curiosity about him that meant he was really interesting to speak with. He is learning so much, but also now has enough key things under his belt that he doesn't have to pay as close attention like he once did. That intense period of learning about housing has moved on. He is just carrying out his plan now, earning income from one property as he builds the next one from scratch. He is still on the learning journey with his share investing though, and he is continuing to refine what he invests in, moving away from the scattergun approach that I think all of us as new investors go through, and already I could tell that he has crested the knowledge wave and is settling in for the duration. So probably the next biggest learning curve is negotiating married life and in particular how their finances will be handled together as a couple and separately as individuals. He is 29 and has been his own person for a long time as has Michaela who is early 30s. So their perspectives on how they handle money may well change as they continue to interweave their lives and it will be interesting to check in and see where they settle. And the final standouts for me are how, if you have a positive attitude and a curious disposition, interesting opportunities come up. He has shown that with the two properties he has purchased, both arising from chance conversations, but he followed up on them, which is what got him to where he is now. And the other standout is that regional New Zealand is such a fabulous place to live. You can't be a one-trick pony when you live in the sticks, and between the two of them, They have such a wide variety of skills, and that is what every small community in Aotearoa needs. So for anyone in a big urban centre feeling like the underdog who can't get ahead, I'd encourage you to take a road trip to the regions and check out what is there. And when you get there, talk to people. People are fascinating if you take the time to ask them about themselves and take extra fuel, because if you get caught short, the chances of finding an entrepreneurial local willing to charge you above the odds for a litre of gas is pretty high. And finally, thanks Dylan for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with me about your situation and share just a snippet of Michaela's too. And congratulations on your wedding day and best wishes for a long and happy life together. So that's all from me this week and if you want to get in touch you can find me at thehappysaver.com and please do share this podcast and my blog with your friends. It's the best way that people can learn about it. And I would love it, obviously, if you would talk more about money with your own friends in Fano and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. Hold up. 